Well, we just finished reading Jeremiah 1. That does not mean that we are just starting in Jeremiah. If you were here last week, you know that I started last week with it as we concluded the book of Acts. As we considered a quote that Paul uses there with the, with the members of the Jewish community of Rome. And uh, as he quoted out of the book of Isaiah, which had a similar passage in Jeremiah chapter 5. And so this morning we get back into a verse-by-verse, passive, chapter-by-chapter uh, look at the book of Jeremiah as it's been introduced last week. And again, we, uh, as we'll need to be our custom, need to talk about some of the historical background um, when we get to any book of prophetic utterance of not only the uh, author, the prophet himself, but also of those that he is speaking to. And this I tried to do somewhat last week, is to examine um, the people and the condition of Israel, that they had been in a condition of syncretism, that is, that they didn't abandon the temple and its worship, they didn't stop going to church, if you will, in a modern idea. Um, They didn't abandon the sacrificial system or the priesthood. Uh, They simply added to it. They simply uh, put alongside of it the practices of the nations. And so while uh, on the high days and the holy days of Israel, they would go to the temple and perform their their religious functions there. Um, On the high and holy days of Baal or the Ashtoreths or or, uh, any other false gods that they followed after, they would simply go after and follow them. And so they were uh, accommodating. And this we find God abhors. Uh, In fact, he has more patience for those that uh, we would describe as just flat-out enemies than he would for this kind of syncretistic, we'll serve God and uh, model. He, He abhors, he hates it. He compares it in the prophets to being an unfaithful wife. Will you tolerate that? And yet you ask God to tolerate our fickleness in serving him one day a week and serving other gods the rest of the week. And this is the condition of Israel, of really Judah. We're really dealing mostly with the southern kingdom through the prophet Jeremiah. But we find, again, that they are confronted with the truth, and as Paul confronted the Jews with the truth over and over again, it was a matter of would they identify the prophet of God, um, in that case, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who fulfills all the prophets as well as all the law. And, of course, once they began to banter over it, uh, Paul was done. He's finished. Um, I have others that want to hear this message and will respond. Uh, unfortunately, for the Old Testament prophets, that wasn't an opportunity they had. They did not have that opportunity to leave off serving uh, their people and to go to another people. We do have a few that did get to go to other lands, um, Jonah being one of them that we think of right away, going off to Nineveh, and we see a tremendous response among the Ninevites to his message. We certainly have Daniel um, also going out, we see a great response to Daniel. Um, doesn't mean that it was universal response by any uh, measure, 
Um, but we see his impact on Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we see his impact as well as his three friends upon uh, the, the worship and the, and the uh, lives there uh, in Babylon, not only Jewish lives, but also of Babylonian and Persian and, and the influence there. But Jeremiah does have some responsibility outside of Judah. While his ministry will be primarily there, uh, you'll notice very quickly in chapter 1 that God expects his ministry to expand well beyond just a nation, um, but rather to all the nations. We're going to see that drawn out a little bit more next week. Um, But we're going to see that his responsibility extends well beyond just um, the tribe of Judah or the southern kingdom of Israel. And so we come into now looking more into the life of Jeremiah himself and his calling. And this is an opportunity really to look at how God works and the necessity of our response and our dependence upon him uh, on every level of ministry. And we're going to focus on that this morning. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. And, and uh, we pray your spirit's direction, as always. And we commit ourselves to this time to examine your scriptures, but in the same time examining our hearts and our lives. And Lord, that you might uh, expose where they... Uh, do not correlate, where they do not line up, where we must uh, work to conform ourselves more and more to your Son, Jesus Christ. Again, Lord, we thank you for your word of truth and its authority and its demands. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. The words of Jeremiah, we are given a little bit of his human history in terms of, uh, he was the son of a priest. Um, he was in the land of Benjamin. And uh, so he is not himself of the tribe of Judah. Uh, although we are going to talk about Judah a lot over the course of the uh, book of Jeremiah, we recognize, hopefully, um, that uh, as a priest, he is not of the tribe of Judah. Or the tribe of Judah, or the tribe of Benjamin. He is in the area, the region of Benjamin. And as a priest's son, he must be in what tribe? Everyone should know this, right? Levi. So he is a priest's son in the land of Benjamin. This may say, well, this is gives him an inside track, if you will, on the work of God in his life. But we're going to find something very different throughout the book of Jeremiah. In fact, what you're going to find um, in just a, a surface reading of the book, that Jeremiah is actually going to come in conflict regularly with the priests of his land. Not only of Benjamin, but of Judah as well. That he is going to be calling them on the carpet for their part that they're playing in allowing Israel and Judah to go into this idolatry and harlotry um, after other gods that has occurred. And so you might say, well, he's the son of a priest, and therefore, you know, he has uh, 
been identified for this priestly service, but it really isn't priestly service that Jeremiah engages in. It's prophetic ministry, and we need to identify those as very different from each other. Um, They were often close um, when we look back at Samuel and others who did perform priestly ministry, although um, he was a prophet, and so we call him the first of the prophets, the last of the judges. Um, And we see that there is some priestly activity often attributed to prophets, but that was not their primary ministry. The primary ministry of a prophet is to declare the truth of God, generally a warning um, against sin, uh, that there is judgment coming, and calling men to repentance. That is the true purpose of a prophet. Um, We often think, well, prophets are there to tell us the future. Um, And that is a happy coincidence of what a prophet really is. It is that he is there to declare, this is what the future will hold for you, and it is overwhelmingly God's judgment. Now, that does not mean that it never speaks of God's blessing, because certainly they do. But uh, the anticipation is, and the reason God has raised up this prophet, is not to address the fact that you guys are living so well, I'm going to send you this prophet because you deserve to know the future. That was never the condition of the prophets, ever. I challenge you to go through any of the prophets, Daniel included, and find that to be the condition. In fact, Daniel in his book uh, offers up an entire chapter of prayer for his sin and the sin of his people while in captivity. Again and again, the work of a prophet is to go to a rebellious, to a disobedient, to a lethargic people of God who have disregarded his word, his prior revelation, and have gone the way of the world. And so they become necessary agents of a very difficult message, and that is, you're wrong. And that's something that you almost aren't allowed to say in our society anymore, is it? Just come someone and say, you're wrong. And so it was in Israel in the day that it was just okay to do your own thing as long as you showed up at the temple at a certain time, a few times a year. That no one was going around saying, this is wrong, and this is what is right, and calling men to repentance and to obedience, to righteousness. They had so forgotten the ways of God that they had effectively become nothing different than the rest of the world. So Jeremiah is setting himself up in opposition to his own tribe, to his own office that he would have gone into in a normal life. His his future would have held for him to go into the priesthood. Um, But God is going to short-circuit that very quickly, very early in his life. And no, you're not going to go into priestly service. You're going to go into prophetic ministry which is going to bring you into a place in your life where you're going to be prophesying against the priests, your own family. And we need to think about that as you read through it. And I'll remind you of that occasionally as we read through it and we get to those passages where he talks about priests and false prophets and to remind you that he's talking to his family. He's preaching against his own family. 
in those settings. And so as we look at this calling of God on Jeremiah, don't consider this some inside track on ministry because he is raised in a preacher's home, in a priest's home, but rather it's almost going to become a test of him, of his faithfulness to the message. Are you going to preach the truth even if it's going to bring you into an adversarial relationship with the priests of the land, with your own family members. And so here he is, Jeremiah. We know he is pretty young for several reasons. Number one, because he says he is. His statement in verse 6 is, Lord, I cannot speak. Lord God, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. And the question is, how young is Jeremiah at this point? And uh, it shouldn't disturb you too much if he might be younger than you think. Um, even as young as 10 to 12 at this point in his life. You might say, does God start working with 10 to 12-year-olds? Well, um, how old was Samuel when God started with him? About eight. To prophesy to whom? The high priest Eli. About what? His son's death. His son's deaths that were coming up. That God had rejected him. These are serious messages given to young people to declare to their closest kin. And I know that Samuel wasn't related to Eli, but he was raised by him from a very young age. Also, this, in this time period, we are introduced to some kings, and I just want to challenge you a little bit to think about um, their ages when they became king. The first king here, Josiah, we find that I, Jeremiah's ministry is going to start in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. Josiah is going to be king for 31 years in the 13th year. By the way, he was 8 years old when he became king. Boy, put your head around that one for a little while. He was 8 years old when he became... Any 8-year-olds in here? Are there any 8? 9? 10? 9? Okay. So we're going to make Theodore king and see what happens. We're all going to be playing games all week long and So this is not unheard of, and, and that is the condition of the land. And so if you think of an eight-year-old, uh, if you think of a guy who's been king for 13 years, you think, oh, you're dealing with a mature person. Um, you're dealing with a 21-year-old. He's been king for 13 years, but now he's 21. My math right? Eight plus 13? Okay. Some of you are looking at me like, He's 21 years old, and now upon, into his reign comes the likes of Jeremiah. Out of the land of Benjamin comes Jeremiah the prophet. And so God begins his reign there, his work there. And we also recognize that how young Jeremiah had to be, um, because as we go through the list of how, what was the period of time that God, the word of the Lord, came to, to Jeremiah? This is verses 2 and 3 combined. So we have the 13th year of Josiah is our beginning time. So Josiah is 21. He is going to minister during the time of Josiah for 18, 19 years. He's also going to minister in the, time, in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. So he's going to minister during Josiah's son's reign. 
Um, there are, by the way, two other kings not mentioned in this list in Jeremiah. Each of them served for only three months each. So you can add another six months into this equation by means of those two lesser kings that were taken off the throne by their overlords, mostly from Egypt and Babylon. But uh, we find that uh, he continues ministering until the 11th year of Zedekiah, also a son of Josiah, king of Judah. And then it's not even done then. So we have the days of Jehoiakim. We have uh, 18 years of Josiah. We have 11 years of Zedekiah. Uh, And so we're up to 40 years of ministry at this point, plus continued ministry after the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. And so his ministry is going to encompass over 40 years. He's going to be ministering to the Lord as a prophet, not as a priest. And in this time, he's going to be imprisoned. In this time, he's going to endure the opposition of the world. He's going to have some of his own family members wanting to put him to death. He's going to be rescued by various different entities along the way. He's, some of his prophecies are by uh, written letter to the captives in Babylon. Um, we're going to find him ministering in a variety of ways to a variety of people. Um, and also, he's going to spend some time outside of Judah. He's going to spend some time outside of Israel as he's going to be carried away to Egypt for a while. And we're going to find him faithful in ministry. Over all this time, we find the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. In the midst of the early part of his ministry, something wonderful does occur. Because in the 18th year of King Josiah, so, so the word of the Lord has been coming to Jeremiah for five years now. By the 18th year of King Josiah, um, Josiah is now, you're, you're adding it up, he's 26 years old. Something wonderful happens in Judah. They go to do some restoration work in the temple. It's kind of run down. It's kind of like we did yesterday. We came around and started washing and trying to fix some things around here and, and uh, just do some fresh paint on things and things like that and washing. So they went into the temple to do some refurbishing because uh, it had gotten kind of run down. They'd let it go down by neglect. And while doing that, lo and behold, somebody comes across a copy of the Law of Moses. And that's a sad thing to think about, that for all these years, Israel did not have before it a copy that could be easily found and read of God's revelation. Now, I just want you to stop and think about that condition for a little bit. This is where the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The priests didn't have a copy. The king didn't have a copy. No one had a copy. This that you have sitting on your lap, so available. They didn't have the revelation of God, a precious gift God had given to them, They did not have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They didn't have it. But it was found. A copy of it was found in the temple. And there was great rejoicing. And they opened it up and they went, (gasps) Why? Because they found that they weren't keeping 
pretty much any of it. The priests had just learned by being handed down from their fathers, and, and it had denigrated, that role had denigrated, and the sacrifice had denigrated. And if you think that's uncommon, it really isn't, and that really is the cause behind Jesus cleansing the temple because it had denigrated again during that period of time. But we find that as they take out this book of the law, remember that Jeremiah is five years into his ministry and they find this book of the law and now they're looking at it and they're going, oh my, we are doing things very, very poorly. We have missed huge portions of what God requires of us. And they begin to try to implement aspects of the law and the sacrificial laws and the... And the um, and the holy days, and they're trying to implement some of that. And Josiah is considered a good king and serves for quite some time, obviously, um, and tries to bring these reforms upon Israel, upon Judah. You might say, well, that's a wonderful opportunity now for Jeremiah to his ministry to be responded to if there's all of this revival because the revelation has been found and... Uh, Now we have Jeremiah who's been preaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord for five years before this event occurs, laying, if you will, the ground, uh, breaking up the fallow ground so that it can be received the seed of God's word. So the timing of God's calling upon Jeremiah is very important. That when they find the word of the Lord, when they find the revelation, the law of Moses in the temple, um, there isn't just a hardness Um, They've been listening to this young guy walking around declaring God's judgment is coming upon them if they don't get their act together. This 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and 26-year-old king has been hearing Jeremiah and the other prophets and has been wanting to serve the Lord. They find his response is to renovate the temple. Maybe that will solve this problem. Maybe the problem is we let the temple go down. And so he orders the renovation of the temple. They find the law of Moses, and now with the ground tilled, if you will, by the ministry of the prophets, here comes the seed of God's revelation, and it seems to take root. The problem is it doesn't fully take root. You see, they didn't really completely weed their fields. And if any of you ever try to grow a crop in amongst the weeds, you know that you're going to get very meager returns. And so they didn't fully remove themselves from the idolatry and from the ways of the nations. And so just as quickly as Josiah is off the scene, is as quickly as they abandon all of his reforms and they go right back to having evil king after evil king and participating in all the idolatry that got him into trouble in the first place. And it is in this context that Jeremiah is ministering. And so as we read through these kings' names and the time periods, and we see the length of ministry, uh, we are reminded that this very young man was called to a life's ministry that most of us wouldn't want to do for a week or a month let alone for 40-some years. And yet, we find that God had purpose in it. And let's look at that purpose this morning. 
in your copy of God's revelation that you should never let neglected in your life. Never let it be neglected. Verse 4, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, ordained you a prophet to the nations. So God's coming to him in the calling of Jeremiah to ministry is really a declaration that this is why you have been conceived. You have been born and conceived in just the right time for just this purpose. Um, And the question now that is going to confront Jeremiah is, are you going to fulfill this purpose? Many people say, well, this is a sure sign of God's sovereign control over every iota of life and that that negates any idea that we have independent will that we can exercise. uh, And, of course, you know that that's not my position. But what we find here is an exception that proves the norm. And the exception is, and this is an exceptional statement, this is not a normative statement that we should make about everyone. But rather, this is an exceptional statement that God has on occasions uh, from the womb, that is from the time of conception and even prior to that to cause the conception to happen, uh, identified individuals to be his ministers. Does that mean that every minister is in that condition? No, I would not contend that. Um, We have several instances where it is declared and that declaration is uh, that this is not normative this is exceptional it is rare and we can look back at some of them and we can look back at at some uh, that we can look at Jacob and Esau in the womb and the activity going on there we can look even at the instructions to the parents of Samson you're going to have a son and here's how he's going to be used um you need to behave yourselves in this way. He's going to be take the Nazarene vow, and I have it all planned out for him. And that was the exception. We find that with John the Baptist, who ministered and prophesied even from the womb as he leapt at the, at the voice of, of our Lord's mother, Mary. And we find that these are the exceptions, that they are pointed out in Scripture Um, not to be representative of the norm, but rather to declare that on occasions God comes in and to aid in the deliverance of men from sin and from his certain judgment, he comes in and he intervenes in a very direct and powerful fashion. And for this we give him glory for. We do not sit here and say, how dare he come here and, and interfere. But rather we praise him that he loved us enough to come in and say, on this occasion, I'm going to raise up this individual for this purpose and is to your benefit. In fact, this is what we find true of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is it not? That at just the right time. That he was born of a virgin by the Spirit's conception in the virgin womb, that he would, at just the right time, when we were without strength, die on a cross to be raised by God 
that we might have deliverance. Over and over again, you will find that when God comes in and does this exceptional work, it is for the benefit of mankind. That if he simply did not insert himself and assert himself in this manner, the men would be doomed. Because if God simply allowed it to persist in its own natural courses, that again, we give him the glory for it because those natural courses um, were established by him in the Garden of Eden, um, that there would be a husband and a wife and they would produce these children, that this is the, the natural mechanism, that uh, we give him the glory for, the, for that. But in his rare and necessary and I hate to use the word interference because it sounds like he doesn't belong there, but as he comes in and takes direct measures within the conception and the formation of certain individuals that he has identified from birth, from conception, from the womb, for, and even before, for a particular purpose. We give him praise, for this is our hope, this is our deliverance. And each of these instances is really a, a, a powerful type of Christ who is to come. And so let's be careful before we take this verse out of its context and make it uh, a statement that covers everybody everywhere, that everyone is, uh, can, is, is set apart and, and that is appointed to a certain task from the time they are conceived rather to see the exceptionalness of such a statement. The Lord comes in and declares, there's a reason you're alive, and one reason. And that is because you're going to be my prophet. I have brought you to this place in your life and the indication is he, it is not very far along in his life. He's pretty young. I have brought you to this place. I've brought light you to life and, and formed you in the way. I've, I've seen to it that you have come to this place because I have a purpose for your life to be my prophet to the nations at this time. And so I have orchestrated all of this and... Now it is time for you to fulfill your purpose. To begin to be engaged in the work to which I have designed you. And again, this is reminiscent of other prophets and of of John the Baptist and our Lord himself. And we wait to see Jeremiah's response. For indeed, there is a response required to such a declaration. You might say, well, Jeremiah doesn't really have a choice in all of this. But his response tells us that he does. He does, in fact. And the Lord is going to counter his statement and and going to confront him again in saying, it's great danger to counter my purpose in your life. Because once you counter that, you have no reason to be here. And this we need to recognize that for many of the prophets to contradict or to fail to accomplish their task 
in the manner in which God declares meant their death. And of course we have one record of that in God's word where God says you go straight there, you give them this message, you come straight home. And on the way home, he encounters another quote-unquote prophet who says, no, God came to me and says you're supposed to come to my house. So the prophet listens to the false prophet, turns aside and doesn't obey God, and for that he is killed by a lion. So this is what hangs on these men, is absolute obedience or the end. There's no mistaking that Jonah's life was in full jeopardy. And the indication is that if he hadn't turned and repented in the belly of that fish, that he would have perished there. You must fulfill the calling of God or die. It's that simple in their lives. So before we want to jump up and say, oh, pick me, God, let's remind ourselves of the demands. The demand for Jeremiah was you're going to have to preach against your own people, your own family. You're going to have to preach the truth that I put in your mouth, and you're going to have to do it consistently. And if you fail or if you don't want to do what you were formed to do, you'll die. These are the demands of the Lord. And so he couches it in this terminology that, that this is, you are an exception that I have uh, brought upon Israel for my purposes. And if you're not willing to fulfill my purposes, there's no other purpose for your life. Can we learn from this exception? Very much so. Before we get into our application, let's just press to the end of the passage here. Of course, his response is, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I'm a youth. And again, we are, this should remind you of another man who said, I'm not a good speech of fire. I don't talk very well. I don't handle public appearances at all. His name was Moses, and uh, he had more than just one excuse to God. He had multiple excuses to finally God is getting pretty fed up with Moses and just says, fine, I'll have your brother talk, but you're still going to have to do the work. I'll let your brother Aaron do all the, all the speeches, but you're going to have to go out there and do it because I've called you to this. And so we can lay up excuses against God's calling in our life. And, and they're usually pretty pathetic for uh, Moses to say to the God who made men's mouths that I can't, I'm not very good at talking, um, is ludicrous. And yet that was his excuse. And here is Jeremiah who comes with excuses, I can't do this job. I'm still just a pup. I'm just a young guy. I'm a kid. You want me to do this job? I'm just a kid. And God comes in and silences his excuse very quickly with a command. Verse 7, do not say, I am a youth. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. This day. I've set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. 
Jeremiah isn't about to give any more excuses. Because God has very firmly and directly addressed his primary excuse, and that is, I'm just a very young person. And you're calling me to be the spokesman person for your message, and who's going to listen to me is essentially the idea. It's not that I can't speak, it's, it's that I have no credentials to speak to anyone. But we don't require them when we have this one credential, and that is that the Lord has put his messages in our mouth. This is the credential of the prophet, is that he speaks the word of the Lord and not his own. If it is some young person, some 12-year-old, standing up, mouthing off his opinion, um, or his observation even, then yes, we would likely just disregard it and put it in its place and... and uh, uh, Put him in his place. But in this circumstance, what we have is a divine interaction where we have a revelatory work of God in this young man's life. And oh, that we would have the wisdom of Eli to say, go back, listen to the Lord, and tell me everything he said to you. This is what Eli said to Samuel. Go back. And God voices to you. And you hear him. You come and tell me every word. Don't hold back any of it. Or so help me, we'll put a curse on you. That's a very powerful statement by Eli. I want you to think about that for a minute. Here's the high priest of Israel going to an eight-year-old child asking what God's plan is. This is the power of revelation. We take our children and we seek to immerse them in God's word. At least in, I have tried to do that in our home and with your children in this church. We have invited them to open their Bibles and read it every day in our quiet times that we do through our children's ministry. We have children's church where they open their Bibles and hear the stories and the accounts. We have Sunday school for that purpose. Um, we invite you to do this at home with your children and that they might know your, their, the Word of God. And it is fascinating sometimes to see the results. To see the results sometimes when children in homes know God's Word better than their parents. And it happens. And that is not a place of authority. That is a place, rather, of knowledge. And that knowledge um, has an effect. And I have seen it, parent, I've had parents come to me and says, oh, my, my kid says this. And I was like, well, your child didn't come up with that. He's just rehearsing for you what he's learned from God's word. The question is, are, are you going to listen to your child? The question is, are you going to listen to God in his word? And yes, sometimes our children put us to shame, don't they? Because when they hear it out of the Bible, and it must be true because we've been telling them the Bible is true and it's the Word of God, therefore it must be, and they believe it. And they pray a 
accordingly. They pray for little baby brothers or baby sisters and mom smiles at it and says, well, that can't happen because I had this surgery. And then she comes to me three months later and says, I'm pregnant. I guess my God listened to my daughter more than me. And I smile and I say, that's because your daughter knows God's word and you don't. What God's capable of. And she believes it. You see, what defines these is not their age, and it's not their maturity. It's about the power of the knowledge of God's word. And that's why we give our children, and we strive in this church to give your children such access to his word, is because there is great power here, and it is not relegated to just the people with multiple degrees after their name. It is available to those who will believe it. Oh, that we would understand the necessity of going into the temple and finding the revelation of God and dusting it off and putting it into our lives, into our minds, and into our practice, into our speech, into our attitudes, into our priorities. The Bible says even a child shall lead them, and that child isn't leading them, again, because of some supernatural um, part of their life outside of the revelation of God. I've had the benefit all my life of having that kind of exposure. That I had opportunity as a very young person being exposed to God's word all the time. In my home, my family made sure that I was in church every time the doors were open. I heard God's word in Sunday school. Uh, at the time, it was a Wana Claus. I was memorizing God's word. I was involved in Bible quizzes um, in the youth group. Um, I, I had privilege of men coming and, and investing God's word into my life. And this is what's going to set Jeremiah apart. This is what sets Samuel apart. This is why a high priest will listen to an eight-year-old. Is because the eight-year-old has the word of the Lord in his mouth. So by the time I was 16, I had memorized hundreds of verses. Listen to hundreds, thousands of sermons, Sunday school lessons, devotionals. And I began to be approached by people to start teaching a Sunday school class, a vacation Bible school. I'm 16, I'm 15, I'm 17. As a 17 year old, I was the keynote speaker at a Mother-son banquet. Put on that assignment. I'm a 17-year-old who's supposed to take God's word, open it up, and be the, uh, the, the speaker to all these moms. I just chose to ignore the moms and talk to the sons. I didn't want to take on the moms. There's no way my mom was there and everyone else's mom. Um, 
And I was like, why in the world would you ask me to do that? But there comes a responsibility and an opportunity. And I had a a youth pastor that came and he says, you have had God's word all your life and it's time you do something with it. I'm like, isn't it time to do something with it once I have a degree, once I'm an adult? No, he says, you start now. And so he throws me down there in the first and second graders. That was my Sunday school class, first and second graders. I had to teach first and second graders. And then when I come home from college, I'm a college freshman. I am a whole 19 years old now. Um, I'm giving the junior high Sunday school class for the summer. Boy, by the way, that was sixth, seventh graders, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders back then. Or was it seventh, eighth, and ninth graders back then? Not middle school, 7th, 8th, and 9th graders, junior high. And here I am, a 19-year-old, trying to teach 12 and 13-year-olds. Man, I was scared every Sunday morning. I was petrified. And if those kids ever figured that out, I was in deep trouble. (laughs) What does a 19-year-old have to say? What does a 17-year-old have to say to a bunch of mothers and sons? My conclusion was, I have nothing. I sat down and read scripture. And I got to tell you something as a 53-year-old, I have nothing to tell you. All these years of living didn't, and maturity, don't add one iota. They don't give me any larger credentials If I don't take up God's word and begin there, I am in just as much trouble, maybe even more trouble, than that 17-year-old who foolishly was (laughs) trying to be a keynote speaker at a banquet. The question is not do you have the experience. It's not whether you have the insight in terms of human intelligence, but rather have you exposed yourself to the word of the Lord sufficiently that it has filled your life and then overflowed and it comes out. And here Lord says, it's not about your age. It's about your source. What is the source of what you're communicating. And if it is yourself, then yes, no one should listen to you, whether you are 12, 8, or 82. No one should listen to you if that's your source. In my opinion, in my experience, when we condition those things with those clauses, when you hear that, in my experience and in my opinion, um, just let your mind wander. (laughs) Because... The value is limited. But when someone says, the Lord says, the scriptures declare, you had better get on the edge of your seat. Because whoever is saying it, providing it truly is, needs to be heard. This is what brings a man, a young man like Jeremiah, to the forefront of his society. 
a young man like Samuel, who from eight years old all the way through the rest of his life served as prophet and judge of Israel. We often think of the prophet judge part more towards the other end of his life, the days of Saul and of David. Um, But he was a nine-year-old judge. He was a 10-year-old judge. He was an 11-year-old judge. He was a 12-year-old judge. He was a 13-year-old judge. He already had five years experience at 13, judging Israel, prophesying the word of the Lord. And here comes a very young Jeremiah up against a king who became king at eight years old, um, who is now 21, and this 21-year-old is having to go to a teenager or a preteen to find out the word of the Lord. I say, boy, is things really messed up in Israel these days. No, it's not messed up at all. Because what the high priest and what the other prophets wouldn't listen to, the 21-year-old king would listen to. It took a few years, but eventually, i got to go fix the temple. This is just a mess. We need to renovate that. And then comes the revelation, the discovery of the law. In addition to the revelation God gives to Jeremiah, now we have the written revelation of Moses, and now things can start to click together and... Josiah's reforms begin to take effect. But it still comes back to the point of authority. Jeremiah is not going to give his opinion. In fact, what Jeremiah is going to be doing most of the time, and and by the way, the book of Jeremiah is a very responsive book. Jeremiah does engage God. Kind of interesting how children tend to do that more than we do. They engage God. And so Jeremiah's response is going to be, oh no, really? And we call him the weeping prophet because he's going to cry out to the Lord, oh, not, not that. Please, not, don't do that to them. And God has to tell him, no, you can't be praying for them like that. Stop praying for them. This is what's awaiting them. It's not going to change. And so Jeremiah is the message that even he himself doesn't like. He's going to weep over it. He's going to write an entire book of his lamentations, of his cryings that we have in our scriptures today. He's going to be reactive to God, and, and as God gives him his, his revelation that he has to go speak, he, his, his questioning to God is, is this going to be necessary? Is this really going to come out? Is this really going to happen in this manner? And God has to reinforce that message, yes! So why is it necessary to listen to it? Because it is the word of the Lord. Because God put his words in that mouth. And yes, sometimes in your life, God is going to put his word, scriptures that your children have studied and learned and memorized, into their mouths and expect you to listen. that's hard. One of the things I always strove to do with children that returned from camp when I wasn't there was to ask them, what did you learn? 
And I asked my children regularly growing up, what did you learn in Sunday school? What did you hear in junior church? What did you learn? Because dad is not the beginning and end of the knowledge of God's word. Neither is the pastor. In their case, it was both. That's not the beginning and end of it. I'm not the measure. This scripture is the measure. And you see God at work in their lives through the work of the ministry of the word and they bring it into our church, into our homes, into our relationships and we have now to either listen or disregard it. To just write it off as a child said it. But if they learned it in that little lamb's club and they go home and spout that off and you disregard that truth, you're going to be held accountable, not that child. Because that child's been exposed to the word of the Lord. And that word has authority no matter what mouth it comes out of. So take heed. Be cautious that we do not simply discount it because it was a young person. And I know as I get older and older, it's easier to do that. And it's difficult to think of giving the assignments to people that, I've, that I was given at my age. But there is wisdom in that. And recognizing that the word of the Lord needs to be spoken, even beginning at a very young age, and in settings that aren't very comfortable. And I think that's the final part that I want to talk about this morning is the uncomfortableness of speaking the message of the Lord. Jeremiah not only was the crying prophet, he was the fearful one. And God says, I know that you're going to be afraid. And what are you going to be afraid of? You're going to be afraid of the faces that you're going to have to look into. (laughs) Why? Because some of those faces are going to be your uncles and your father and your king. And you're just a kid. You're going to have to look at high priest's faces. And you're going to have to look at other prophets. You're going to have to look at the prince's faces. You're going to have to look at all of these faces. And the Lord says, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to send you to all those people, and I'm going to tell you, don't be afraid. They're not, don't be afraid because they're going to listen to you. Don't be afraid because I will deliver you from them. And that's a little frightening, isn't it? Think about what he just said. Don't be afraid because I will deliver you from them. That tells us right away that they're going to be against you. That is, the faces that you're not to be fearful of are not going to be, oh, it's wonderful to hear the word of the Lord from that. That's not the face you're looking into. You're not even looking into friendly faces who want you to succeed because you're a young pastor. You're not looking into friendly faces uh, <laughs> that, uh, or even bored faces that are just sleeping through it all. You're looking into faces that are angry, that are in disagreement, that are ready to kill you. And yes, they're going to line up to kill this man, even as a young man. They're going to imprison him. They're going to mistreat him. 
Uh, there are going to be multiple times that Jeremiah's life is going to be hanging by a thread, but that thread is a tinsel steel cable of God's promise. And so it's not going to be broken. That thread is this promise, I will deliver you. I am with you. Don't be afraid. You just keep saying what I tell you to say. And shame on us if we are among the number who would make any young person afraid to speak the word of the Lord openly and honestly. That we would be of that willingness to not only encourage them to teach, but to listen to them teach. To be able to let a son be our teacher or even a grandson at this point. Here's a young man, afraid, sensitive. And God says, you need to know something. For this you were born. This is my intention, to use you, and I don't do that by depending upon you, but by making you depend upon me. And this is his calling. Depend upon me. I will fulfill my purposes in your life. And we're going to look at those more next week. Not just for a month, not just for one event, but for 40 plus years. I'll take care of you. This we need from another generation and another after that till our Lord comes. We need young men and young women who will speak the word of the Lord without fear. Not because they are brave souls in themselves and not because of, the, of a stubbornness or a wisdom or a maturity, but because they are willing to depend upon the Lord at his word that he is able to deliver us. If we will but speak the truth, though all men frown at hearing it. And that's the reality that we are facing in our culture today. Try it. Try to speak the truth of God's word in your environments at work. Try to speak the truth in our educational system from God's word. Try it and see if you will not get the frowns of every face. And yet, as we engage ourselves in God's word, we find the promise is still there. The Spirit still empowers and enables that we might speak the truth, but yet we are called upon to be ready. And Jeremiah, though he was born for this, though he had all these promises, it was still for him to surrender and to say I'll be your man even while I'm a boy if that's what you want and this is where it begins and this is our invitation to you that we be receptive to the word of the Lord in whatever 
mechanism God uses to bring in our life, that we immerse ourselves and our children in his word, and then we stand back and wait for the effect, that we brace ourselves for the expectation of obedience that it demands of us once we know the truth. We are to keep it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. for the mystery of your ways. You take the weak things and do powerfully through them. That you take the frightened and give them responsibilities that require a boldness that is not their own. That you take the sensitive and shy ones and thrust them forward to confront and demand. Lord, we know that this is all that it might be to your glory. And no man can say that he did it of himself. Lord, our prayer is that we might always serve you thus, depending upon not our own our own natural abilities, but upon the gifts of your Spirit in our life to serve you faithfully. We might give you the praise and the glory always. And Lord, I do pray that you might find us here in this church and in each of our homes responsive to your word, that we might be attuned to it, that we might immerse ourselves in the knowledge of your word that we might recognize it, that when it is spoken rightly so, that we must respond no matter what mouth it came out of. Lord, give us a heart of humility to recognize that your word trumps our word. That from your scriptures comes truth. If we do not see our experience conformed to it, then we must re-examine our experience and not your truth. Give us that wisdom, Lord. And give us the willingness to obey. And as we surrender to you, knowing that you will guard us, through all the hardships that we are to anticipate in such a life. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.